Stay hungry, stay foolish. This show is brought to you with thanks to Microsoft for Startups. We've reached a point in time where everyone wants innovation, but most people don't know how to actually attain it. It's not easy, which is why there are so many failed brands and companies. In our era of AI, rapid change, disruption, and possibility, there are so many great opportunities within our grasp. However, smart, successful people consistently miss out. Their capabilities are limited by seven traps, and they rely on and repeat past decisions. They miss out on the potential of what could have been. If we could remove these traps, what could we accomplish? How much more successful could we be? Today's book teaches us how to think disruptively, providing specific steps to create real innovation and change. It combines our guests' high-energy provocative thinking with tactics that have been battle-tested through projects with leading innovators like Disney, Starbucks, American Express, IBM, Adidas, Google, and NASA. We welcome CEO of Trend Hunter, an author of Create the Future, the Innovation Handbook, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking, Jeremy Gucci. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much for inviting me on. It's great to have you on the show. I thought a great way to start would be to share your mission, which was initially inspired by your father when he spotted a simple formula of hard work plus an overlooked opportunity as an eight-year-old boy. For me, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur and sort of teeing into the story about my dad. He was a little boy businessman at age eight, and I think that always inspired me. You know, he was a, a new immigrant to Canada, and they didn't have much. They lived in a one-bedroom house with his two brothers and his parents, but they always ate well because my grandmother was a chef. And uh, one day she took him to the grocery store and there it was, the Kraft Philadelphia cream cheese. And when she wasn't looking, he took a great big bite out of it. She saw him and was, oh, mortified, ran over, grabbed him by the neck, but then probably started thinking, what's she going to even say? And she marches over to the storekeeper and then just sort of nervously says, ah, uh, I caught this kid stealing. <laughs> Isn't that your kid? And they sentenced him to a month of sweeping the floor after school. And when he did that, even though he was only eight years old, he started noticing something really weird, which is that at the end of the week, the grocery store would throw away food that looked good enough maybe to eat, but not good enough to sell. And that seemed really weird as a poor kid from a poor neighborhood. So he struck up his first business deal, which was to sweep the floors for the rest of his life if he could, but in exchange for the leftover scrap food that he would then sell delightfully to his neighbors in his poor neighborhood, and they loved that. So he was only eight, but pretty soon he was the first kid on the block with a leather jacket and a BB gun, you know, expanding his little childhood empire. And, and he had a whole career of ups and downs that I, I get into in the book, but entirely what he was motivated by was how do you find overlooked opportunities in people and places, things like those scrap vegetables that others were willing to discard. And as a kid, for me, that led to seeing an entrepreneurial father who I wanted to emulate, but also he wanted to raise a little entrepreneur. So he would go through magazines with me and we would go through hundreds of magazines and we would flip through, it didn't matter what category magazine, by the way, it could be on fashion, tech, design, pets, architecture, cars, it could be any category. What we would do is we would flip to the section with new inventions, and then he would say, what do you think about that invention? How would you make it different? What would we do if we wanted to build this? What parts do we need? What would it cost us? What would the reader of this magazine, what would she think? And then I would make all these prototypes. So I wanted to be an entrepreneur so badly, and I had done hundreds of these little prototypes growing up that I was an innovator at heart. I was ready to, to listen to your show, actually. But it's tough to find your idea. And so that turned me into a career of corporate innovation. Eventually, I ran innovation. I even grew a billion-dollar business for a bank, which sounds cool, but I guess for myself... 
I would just imagine finding my 12-year-old child in me and saying, you grew up to be a banker. Be like, no, what about the entrepreneurial dream? And so back in about 2005, I started teaching myself to code and I coded up a website that would be pretty much just like that magazine exercise with my dad. And it was a place where people from around the world could come to share ideas called trendhunter.com. And truthfully, I thought maybe a trend hunter in Europe or a trend hunter in Asia would submit the little business idea that would inspire me to start something back home here in Canada or, or maybe in the, in the U.S. But I didn't expect traffic would go from thousands to millions to billions. And, it, you know, this is pretty early in the game. 2005 is before Facebook, before YouTube. This little website started getting just billions of views, but, but you know, no business model attached to it. And so... Probably around 2011, I started turning it into much more of a research tool. And that's when we really started taking off as a business. And, and yeah, now we've got, had a chance to work with all sorts of innovators. We work with about 700 brands and uh, we've learned a lot from all of them. I think 10,000 projects we've done now. And that's what the book Create the Future is all about is what, what have we learned from working with so many bright people in their quest to push just a little bit harder to realize your next idea is so close within your grasp. You have other paths of opportunity you could be on. What are the things blocking you from your true potential? And and so after, you know, I guess, almost 20 years of this, that's what this book is meant to really be, to bring all those tactics into one spot. I love that. And I love the way word and a, an example, watching your father totally encouraged you for the rest of your life and how that you didn't submit to that corporate world that just didn't feel right to you as well. And you really have this mission to change the world and change how people think and let them follow in this idea of optionality, which we'll come to. It's one of the seven traps that we talk about. But you say many people claim culture is the most important part you need for innovation. But you highlight that even more important is the ability to change. Yeah, you know, I'll give you a fun example. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. People kind of, that's a Peter Drucker quote. And, and, and culture is the core of being able to have a, an environment where people could innovate. But there are a lot of companies with terrific cultures that get totally disrupted. You know, there's a quote, you hear a lot of these examples, uh, you know, Kodak, Blockbuster, Smith Corona, where they invented something big, but they missed out. I've gone a step further and I've interviewed all of these people. I interviewed the team at Blockbuster that pioneered online video streaming and caught up to Netflix in six months. I interviewed Steve Sasson, the guy from Kodak who invented the digital camera in 75. And what I, I found in, in dozens more, what I find interesting is many of them really liked the culture they were in. It, it was actually supportive, but the weakness would be the ability to change. So if I take the example of Kodak, Steve Sasson had invented this digital camera in 75. By 1976, he's had a paper on how we will share photos over the phone lines and store photos on, on effectively disks. They had in the 90s a website where you could share pictures of your face socially with your friends like a decade before Facebook. And, and, and you look back and you're like, well, wh wow, why did they go bankrupt? How didn't they take that over? And he gave me this quote, which is he said, a company's great culture can be the seed to its own destruction. And in his interpretation of that, he said, what happened is Kodak was a great culture, but its brand, its internal motivation was about really doing one thing, which was the perfect Kodak quality print and beating Fuji, having a higher quality image than Fuji. And they were so proud of being number one and they were so good at it that they just kept on rocking out better silver halide film and paper. And and uh, and that meant they didn't really want to take advantage of his, his new thing. And, and I have similar stories from a lot of other brands. So I think what's interesting is the ability to change is, is really what's the, your important starting point. And so often these iconic brands or smart people have the ideas within their grasp, but your own intelligence, your own success can actually block you from adapting because you've done your current type of product so many times that something that's just a little bit off can seem like it's destined to fail and you just know it, you feel it, but you don't realize that new ideas are awkward little babies that need a little nurturing, attention, refining to be as good as the thing you've been 
iterating on hundreds of times before. Yeah, and that's one of the traps you talk about is this trap of success that can catch us. But let's use that to jump into the book. When I was a kid, I used to watch The Muppet Show. And in The Muppet Show, they had this part called Pigs in Space. And I much prefer your analogy of horses in space because (laughs) you use this to explain how we are much more dependent on and often limited by the past than we might think we are. Absolutely. So the story then about horses in space goes like this. There are no horses in space, but you, being a smart and successful, clever person, should expect that there are precisely two horses in space. And while we're talking about horses in space, you should expect them to be four foot, eight and a half inches wide. And the reason why you should expect that is because that's the width that was used to determine the width of NASA's solid rocket boosters. Now, it wasn't coincidental that the rocket boosters are based on the width of two horses. It's specifically because of it being the width of two horses. And if you want to understand this riddle, you'd actually have to go really far back in time in Wikipedia, and you'd have to go back to the age of the Roman Empire. The Romans had the greatest land because they could patrol that land with the two-horse Roman war chariot. The war chariots tore up the the highways, or I guess the road, uh, the dirt pathways of Europe, creating ruts everywhere. And if you were a little farmer driving your little wagon through the fields, and through those ruts, you might break a wagon wheel. So if you were a clever farmer, you would measure the width of those ruts to make your new wagon the right width as the ruts. And you would learn that the ruts were spaced four foot eight and a half inches apart, just like the Roman war chariot. So pretty soon everyone with a wagon makes their wagon four foot eight and a half inches wide. Then humans, uh, Europeans invent wagonways, which are carts that are pulled on rails by horses in and out of the gold mines and they decide to put those rails four foot eight and a half inches wide europeans then make the first trains and put them on tracks that are four foot eight and a half inches wide americans are not connecting their tracks to europe but they still make them four foot eight and a half inches wide pretty soon we gut all of the train tracks to make room for bigger badder faster trains that still run on tracks that are four foot eight and a half inches wide some trains go 200 miles an hour on tracks that are four foot eight and a half inches wide, though there's some experimentation, but generally. And so when NASA needs to ship the solid rocket boosters from Utah to Florida, they must put them on a train track that is the width four foot eight and a half inches wide. Now, if you take a look, you'll notice that the solid rocket boosters overlap the width of the track a little bit, but it doesn't change the fact that the width was determined loosely by the width of two horses butts wow (laughs) even though that just can't possibly be the perfect width for rocket boosters in space the lesson goes to show you that we're more dependent on our past decisions than we like to think all of these little haphazard decisions become standards then it makes sense to follow the standard and pretty soon we're making things for space based on the width of horses even though they're are no horses in space. That width is stupid, and we're probably worse off for it, but it is a metaphor I like to use when talking about the paths that we get stuck on. And in particular, I use a term called path dependency, which comes from the 1950s. And in Create the Future, I use that as the overarching metaphor, and I walk through seven of the different paths, uh, uh, sorry, traps of path dependency, which cause us to cling to the path we're on, whether it's Kodak deciding to keep making better digital prints or better prints instead of digital or in your own world, sticking to that job, that career, that core product, that service, and having blinders on that that block you from seeing the potential of, of your other pathways. When I was reading this part, I was thinking about, you know, those images you see of places like India where the commute is horrific, where you have people hanging out of the rooftops of the trains, etc. And it's all because of that four foot, eight and a half inches wide, the dependency on the past is huge. And the paths forged by the horses are a lovely metaphor for the mental pathways we forge. And you emphasize these seven traps of dependency. And I think if we got through all of them today, we'd have a fantastic show. But let's start with the first trap. And this is the one that you noticed as as a young child, but also your father did the subtlety of opportunity. And you illustrate this one brilliantly with a story of Tony 
and the iPod. There's a guy named Tony, and he wants to be in the technology field. He works really, really hard, and pretty soon he becomes a chief technical officer at Philips Electronics. He's in charge of strategy and new ventures. His job is helping Philips figure out what they should invest in. And one day he's got an idea and he's so excited about it. It's a little device that uses a hard drive and, and he's so excited and he decides to go out on his own and try to make his little hard drive idea a reality. But hardware is expensive. He spends two years trying to get a funder or to make it work and he fails and fails and finally, finally gives up on his little dream and he's got to get a day job to pay the bills. But before he gives up totally, he goes to CEOs he knows and he says, hey, I will give you all my intellectual property. You can have what I've been working on if you just be the one that supports me on working on this idea for your company. And one of the CEOs says, okay, we'll do it. But here's the catch. We have $500 million of debt, $20 million in cash in the bank, and we are, you know, in a period of failure. So this is like a shot in the dark. It works or it doesn't. He accepts it. He accepts it as a contract. And finally, they make the prototype. He's so excited. He gets on a plane. You don't, you don't mail a prototype, by the way, if it's, you know, probably cost 10 or $20 million. You don't mail that. You get on a plane and you fly with it uh, to your CEO. <laughs> and then he gets off the plane and he realizes it slipped out of his pocket. Oh my gosh. You had to know you do. You tell United Airlines, turn around, I left my baby on the plane or something. And it's a good thing they did because the friend was Steve Jobs. The prototype was the iPod, and that would go on to become the iPhone. Now, that's a fun little backstory for you that shows the struggle for Tony, who would then lead the iPhone division. And it shows you how all along the way the guy spent years trying to convince people. But even when Apple made it, an important little piece of history is that if we rewind in time, though you and I might have seen the potential of an iPod, the real takeaway for me is if you look at the other industry experts, the billionaires, the CEOs of the competitor companies, the people that are the best in a market will see other ideas as awkward or clumsy and dismiss them. So for example, Motorola's chief technical officer said that the iPhone was nothing revolutionary. Motorola already did all those things in their phone and they were much larger uh, you know, in that, in that space. Palm's billionaire, Ed Cooligan, said the PC companies are just not going to figure this out. Steve Ballmer, worth $40 billion, said, you know, Microsoft's guy, said there's, there's just no chance. Nokia's head of technology, uh, uh, they had a billion customers at the time, a billion phones out there active, said with, App, with Mac, Apple remained a niche. Expect the same with, mo with mobile phones. And BlackBerry said... Well, with all of the ads and all of the excitement that Apple's drumming up, customers are now coming to the store, but they're leaving with a BlackBerry. So what Apple's actually done is increased our sales. That's from Mike Lazardis, one of the two billionaires who co-founded BlackBerry. That's a lot. That's amazing. That's every one of them looking and thinking, they won't figure this out. They'll get too caught up. They won't get the distribution rights with you know, the Verizons of the world. They won't have people allowing them to take that much bandwidth. But guess what? They figured it out. The problem is when you're really good in any market, you've tried so many different little things that anything else by comparison, it sort of seems clumsy. You know, a different example that I could do very, very quickly would be to say that Smith Corona made thousands of typewriters over a hundred years. They were so good at innovating typewriters. Their typewriters started having spell check, search and replace, saving onto a disk. So then finally they tried making a computer. They had it on the shelves in 1990, but the computer looked clumsy, external hard drive, external whatever, you know, it's just sort of clumsy. And they thought, what do our clients like? I don't know, our clients are multinational corporations and banks. They like the typewriter. So you know what? They gave, on the, they gave up on the computer business. They abandoned their joint venture partner because it seemed too clumsy. And three years later, they declare bankruptcy. And the joint venture partner, Acer, whom they abandoned, goes on to become the second largest PC maker <laughs> in the world. And I could give you 100 examples. I go through a couple dozen in the book. But the point would be that the brightest people in an industry so often miss out on an idea that others would see potential in, like the iPhone. But when you're in that space, you can see everything wrong with it. 
And so you think you know more and that you can catch up if it has any traction, etc. So that's the first trap, which is the subtlety of new opportunity. The other side of that is a lot of startups and founders listen to the show. And it's that idea that keep going. You will be rejected many, many times. You mentioned Hotmail, Amazon, Apple, LinkedIn, Salesforce, and Google. But I love the story you mentioned. And this one's a really encouraging, positive one of James Marshall. He has a guy named James Marshall. And, you know, all he wanted to do was be a, a musician. But, you know, he's like that friend you had that didn't learn how to read music and just sort of wants to still do it, not taking the lessons, whatever. So he keeps on trying to be a musician. He's pushing harder. He moves to Tennessee. He tries there. It doesn't work. Eventually moves to London. And he's just kind of failing along. And then one day he's playing in a bar and he and then there's a band in the bar and the, the band happens to be the monkeys and they're just there for a pint. And they they see him, they like him, they catch up to him and they say, hey, like, we actually like you to uh, come on tour with us. And he's like, wow, the, imagine being on tour with the monkeys. And back then the monkeys are getting 20,000 people a stadium. Um, actually, you know what? We'd like you to open for us. So he's super excited. And he goes up and he gets in front of this crowd of 20,000 people and he plays his first song. But it's kind of weird. It's quiet. It's not like with the monkeys where they cheer. So he plays his second song. He keeps going. It's quiet. And then by the third song, it's different because they all start to boo and they boo him off the stage. Ah, the monkeys go to James and they say, hey, James Marshall, buddy, don't worry about it. Uh, just keep going. Next show will be different. Persevere. Next show, it is different. People start booing after the first song. So he keeps trying at it. Third concert, fourth concert, fifth concert. And finally, it's the sixth concert. And it's completely different. Because when he gets on stage, they boo before he even played a song. Word had traveled. So he, uh, he ends up throwing his guitar. Legend says he flipped the bird at the crowd. And then he quit altogether. And that's the story of Bill Gates. Just kidding. <laughs> That's the story of James Marshall, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, who would go on to become uh, the greatest, arguably the greatest rock and roll star and highest paid in his time. But an interesting lesson in perseverance because hearing his music for the first time, these tens of thousands of people just felt it was so different and it was too much for them to handle when they were expecting something different. And that the very same songs he was singing would go on to be many of the classics, uh, the classic Jimi Hendrix songs that now strike such an emotional chord with all of us today. And whether you're talking about app, uh, Apple and Hotmail and Google all getting rejected dozens of times from venture capitalists or talking about Jimi Hendrix getting rejected when people first listen to his music, the reality is that it can take people time to get their head around those new ideas and it can take a while to really sort of polish them out before they become something that can truly realize potential. The next trap we all fall victim to, no matter how good we are, is neurological shortcuts. And when I was reading about this, it reminded me of a quote I love by Walt Disney, a company that you've worked with. Every child is born blessed with a vivid imagination, but just as a muscle grows flabby with disuse, so the bright imagination of a child pales in later years if he or she ceases to exercise it. And that came to mind as I read about your niece and her love of dinosaurs. <laughs> the, there's an interesting little uh, issue, which is that we become more intelligent over time. But the way that we become more intelligent is that we start to plasticize our neural processes. We, uh, we make little highways in our brain called myelin pathways and myelin is white matter in your brain, and, the, and it accounts for about 40% of your brain's mass. What happens is the first time you do something, you make a little neural impulse. But if you practice it again and again, your brain paves a little myelin pathway of this little white fatty tissue. And then the next time you do that thing, bam, you can do it faster because the neural impulse knows where to go. You practice something again and again and again and again, and pretty soon some of your myelin pathways could allow you to do things 100 times faster, 100 times easier than before. And that's the, that's the brain aspect of it. But let me make it really simple and show you how this plays out in a sort of ascending order from simple things to complex things. Something simple. 
cross your arms as, as fast as you can. I know when you're at home listening to this, it sounds really weird, but just cross your arms very quickly. It's, it's easy. Now, this is important. You have to try this because you're gonna, I'm going to show you something. Now, uncross your arms, shake them off, and you have to do this to really get the impact of what the lesson is. Now, as fast as you can, cross your arms, but the opposite way. Cross your arms the opposite way. It's not, that's not a very complicated thing to have to do, but the second time you had to think through the steps because you didn't have a myelin pathway to cross your arms the other way, unless it's something you practice all the time, which you probably don't. Now that's just basic, but let's go one level higher. I love to do an exercise. It's another thing from the 60s uh, in psychology, but it's called the alternative uses test. And you take an object and you ask people, what else could you do with it? So the example would be a paperclip. And this is the one that was uh, my niece versus, versus the rest of us in a little video and experiment I did. But I say, what can you do with a paperclip? And you could, do, you could try this with your team, try this with your team, uh, uh, colleagues, family, but maybe not your kids just yet. And, and then ask them what you can do. And I can tell you what people will come up with because I've done this more than 100 times. And I get them to go for it. And then you, the average group gets to 10 or 15 ideas. And then I surprise them by putting up a slide that was already made that already had all their ideas. And here's what people will say. You can pick a lock. You can make a weapon. You can clip paper together. You can make a necklace. Sir, buy your wife something nicer. You can make earrings. Sometimes people will say you can pick your teeth with it. You can make art. You can uh, trade it for a house. You can have a fidget toy. You and, and Anyway probably came up with a good number of the ones you might have been thinking off the top of your head. Here's what's interesting. If you take that same question and you bring it to a six-year-old child, so in the book I, you know, I did that test with my niece, they'll come up with 200 ideas. 200. And their ideas will be unbound by <laughs> the simple notion that you and I and others gravitate towards things we've done or seen before and that's because of our myelin. Our myelin wants us to be faster. And so it accesses the connections it knows. And your very first ideas of what to do with a paperclip will be things that you've seen or done before instead of pure raw creativity. That's a paperclip. It's one more complicated than crossing your arms. But it starts really illustrating that our myelin pathways make us faster, make things smoother, better, more consistent but they also make us repetitive, stubborn, complacent, and dismissive of new ideas. And in the example of the paperclip, you start to realize, you know, do this with your team versus your kids, and you'll start to see how this impacts you. Dial this up one more level to your career, and you won't have a kindergarten kid there pointing out the other ideas you're missing but you will start to realize that you gravitate to the path that you're on and you totally miss out on other opportunities. The only way to get to those opportunities would be to routinely do something like a workshop where you are trying to look at your problem from multiple perspectives. How would a totally unrelated company approach this problem? How would Facebook do it? How would Apple do it? How would Uber do it? And, and, and it's not that those companies might enter your market, but it's just trying to think of constructs like that that get you to look at your problem from a different perspective. And maybe you'll get a good idea from your brainstorming. But even if you don't, you're training your myelin pathways to be better at training your at sort of training your brain to look at problems from different perspectives, which brings us right back to your Disney quote and this idea that that's the way you, you exercise that muscle in your creativity to retain that creative raw potential you had as a child. Yeah, and just a reminder that this show is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups. And the third trap, Jeremy, you talk about is the ease of inaction. And we can be all so busy optimizing the icebergs on which we stand to not notice that they're melting. And here you tell us the best organizations in the world are always paranoid. And by that, I mean they have a finger on the pulse of disruption and they perpetually fuel urgency. Interestingly, I've had a chance to work now with about 750 brands, billionaires, CEOs, world leaders over the course of the last decade and a half. And, and, and I've learned a lot from that, but I'll tell you how, how I got into it. And then that'll kind of lead to where I've seen these takeaways. I'd written a, a, a book that won some awards back in 2008 called Exploiting Chaos, which was about how chaos 
creates opportunity. Times of recession and, and gloom and crisis intimidate us, but actually the most iconic brands were often formed during times of recession. As an example, uh, Disney, Apple, CNN, Fortune Magazine, Hewlett-Packard, Uber, Airbnb are all companies founded during a period of a recession because these time periods of change create new opportunity. And yet most of us get to, a little too conservative to realize the opportunity. So this is what I study. And when I published that book in 2008, the world, especially America, went into crisis. And in 2009, 10, 11, 12, I was in the right place at the right time. And all of a sudden, I was the chaos guy. And I started having this super rare opportunity to help one billionaire after another, and then a different CEO, and then a different CEO. And I learned a ton from it. And one of the takeaways that I would say is that I think that people put themselves in one of three boxes, three categories of self-perception. You either think that we're in a terribly bad situation, that things are going well, or that you're super paranoid about staying number one. And if I was to tell you what proportion of people fall in those categories, I think maybe 2% of companies fall in that we're paranoid and we need to stay number one category. And these might be companies like Google, where you see them consistently having failures. They're trying hundreds of different things. Not everything works, but, but they don't care because they're just so paranoid they'll try anything to stay number one. On the other end, maybe there's a 20% group that's in that group that think things are going disastrously. But I've noticed that that group is really good at trying anything. And I started working with Domino's Pizza in 2010 or 11. Their stock price was down 90%. And they felt that they were going to totally collapse. But then what happened is, because of that, they were willing to try anything. They started doing pizza you could order with an emoji, pizza delivered by drones, pizza live streamed in its creation before it gets to your house. But, but they were doing this stuff 10 years ago, 8 to 10 years ago. And, and this is when people didn't know what an emoji was. And I always think of that example because I think, imagine being the guy in a meeting, or the woman who's clever enough to say, I think you should order pizza by an emoji. Well, everyone would normally laugh you out of the room if the company <laughs> was doing well. But if you think it's going to tank and you're paranoid, you'll try anything. And I know with us, Domino's did, I think, 167 projects. They tried experimenting in every possible way. And if you fast forward to today, even though they were down 90%, they ended up growing 10,000%. Their growth rate has outpaced almost every technology company investment uh, of any major tech company. And it's Domino's Pizza. But it's because they fall in this category where there's many other examples too. But if you think things are going to fall apart, then you're willing to try things. Now, this gets us to the last group, which is the unspoken group that we almost all put ourselves in. That To add my math up now, 78%, but the majority of companies where people kind of think we're doing well. We're doing well. We'll get through this. We have to adapt. That's the most dangerous group to be in because when you think you're doing well, you cling on to your marketing policies, your best practices, your policies, your procedures, and then you don't want to try something new. And that's an incredible trap. And the only way out of that is to really start creating urgency. Uh, in this time period of COVID and working from home, the world has shaken up. So this will provide in some sense, an opportunity for all those companies in that middle doing well group to reassess and realize, whoa, we could be in a big trouble if we stick to the path that we're on. But that's the way that I like to sort of think about it is your self-perception of performance, if you think you're doing well, can actually be a very dangerous thing. There's a great story you share here. I'd love if you'd share it with our audience. And it's the story of Tony Hunter, your first fan of that book, Jeremy. Oh. <laughs> and it's so apt for the turbulent times we're going through right now. And to tee you up for this story, I pulled a quote from Tony from the book where he said, I believe the role of a leader during disruptive times is to create a pathway and reason for change. We had to go from being a newspaper company to being a media and business services company that happens to publish a newspaper. I thought that's a great way to tee you up for how we need to think in the future and today. So yeah, Tony Hunter has become a friend over the years. And when he first dialed me up, I think it was around 2009. And at the time, trendhunter.com, my little startup, which had 10 people at it maybe at the time, had more traffic than every newspaper in the world. And he was uh, the editor of the Chicago Tribune newspaper. So he wanted to figure out 
how might they do their digital transformation better? And we worked with them for a while on that. It was, they were relatively successful in, in becoming a digital paper. And then one day, Tony got the call. And the times were still turbulent to be a newspaper. And the call was, hey, we want you to be CEO. He was head publisher, but they wanted to be CEO. So imagine getting that call. That's a big breakthrough. Wow. But what's the catch? Because he didn't feel like he was ready to be CEO. And they said, well, the catch is we want you to declare bankruptcy, fire 20% of your friends, the, the rest of the staff, shrink the paper, sell more ads, and, you know, make this thing profitable. That's kind of that's kind of a terrible call because if you actually think through it, you're sort of being asked to be the fall guy, the scapegoat. Like we want you to take the job, declare bankruptcy, lay everyone off, and then you're not going to succeed at the rest of it. That sounds terrible. And so you'd be tempted to say no, but Tony loves this paper so much. This is not a brand to him. It's an institution, a pillar of the community. And he felt it was his duty to do this. And he didn't want to lay people off, but he saw that as the only way to to save the rest of the company. So he took he took the the job on and you know he signed that piece of paper that that was the death certificate in a way, the bankruptcy declaration and, and did the layoffs. But then he had a a really intense period of urgency to try to look at his problem in a different way and see if he could turn the paper around. And at that point he fell in that third group we or that second group we talked about where you have a self-perception of performance which is kind of we're in a disastrous state, so we have to try anything, just like Domino's Pizza. And so in that time frame, they started looking at everything differently. And we talked about how you get caught in a path and then you only look at what the normal things are to do. I'll give you one example of being caught in a path. At the time, every newspaper was shrinking its size and sort of putting more articles online. But the default in 2008, 9, 10, 11 was you shrink the paper, you make it smaller. We use a lot of pattern thinking, and I, I kind of walk through this and create the future, how you look at that problem differently. But one of the patterns is the pattern of divergence, where you would look at what people are doing, and if everyone's doing one thing, you do the opposite. And uh, in this case, if everyone's shrinking the paper, well, what if he grows the paper? And sure enough, by growing the paper and deciding to be very counterintuitive and doubling its size... Suddenly, if you wanted to know more about the Chicago Bears or whatever your favorite Chicago sports team is, well, guess what? There's only one paper that will possibly do. So that move totally destroyed the other newspaper's ability to compete, and they ended up selling more papers. Wow. Step one, complete. The second uh, use of sort of pattern thinking that Tony exhibited was thinking about there's a pa pattern um, that I go through called reduction in the book where you look at the single most important thing to your single most important customer, but you really try to think about what they're trying to accomplish. So, so for a newspaper, your customers are kind of interesting. There's the readers, there's the national advertisers, and there's the local advertisers. And your local advertisers actually pay a really big premium. So your customer is kind of the local advertiser of a paper. And if you pick up a local newspaper, you will see that their ads for local businesses are usually terrible. It's like, it's like we sell stuff, come buy more stuff. Like they're just bad ads. So the, the, the idea of reduction as a pattern would be, well, if you look at those little businesses and see what they're trying to do, they're trying to market their brands and sell their products, but they don't really have marketing agencies, and that's why their ads are terrible. So the turnaround point for the Chicago Tribune was to say, well, if that's our customer, the reductive way of thinking would be let's not sell them ads. Let's go and be their CMO for them and sell them services, entire suite of all the services they would need to market or go digital or whatever it might be. And that, that single action caused the Chicago Tribune to go from bankruptcy to the number one most profitable news organization uh, in America in a span of just a couple years. So a real hero story for Tony. I think of him as one of the greatest turnaround CEOs. Uh, and so I tell his story in the book. He was kind enough to write the foreword at it and then speak at some of uh, my Trend Hunter Future Festival events. So I'm very thankful for uh, meeting him, but it's been interesting to kind of dive into that. And there's a lot more. I'm actually giving a pretty abbreviated 
is sort of answer to a, a person whose career has was with his team doing such a remarkable turnaround. There's more to it, uh, which I get into in the book, and I hope he'll come out with a book one day too so that people can learn more of his story. He really deserves plaudits for the bravery of taking on that challenge. Many people wouldn't have. As you said in the book, he could have easily had to delete his LinkedIn profile and just go underground after taking on such a massive task. So it's great to see people like that succeed. But moving on to the fourth trap, so we'll go a little bit more briefly through the last few traps. The fourth trap is optionality, Jeremy, and this is the age-old problem of short-term thinking. And this reminded me of how we ended up with the four feet, eight and a half inches wide paradigm. (laughs) We set ourselves on a certain path, and then that path becomes difficult to change. Yeah, and I'll answer about optionality a little quicker too. Just to note, optionality is a term from finance about creating value by adding more options and more choices for the future. What happens is that as people, as businesses, we tend to really weight our decisions right in front of us by what's the most profitable decision. So if I use a a simple example, when you look at your own career, you probably have a story like mine you're in university, you're maybe not 100% sure of your major, but then you kind of pick one particular major because uh, of a course or two that kind of line up to it. You wanted to take the course. Okay, now that's your major. Uh, Mine ended up being finance, but I would have also liked marketing. Then you do your interviews, and then one job pays a couple thousand dollars more than the other job, and you think, ah, I think I'll take that one because it pays a couple thousand more, and I can change my mind later. In mine, and then maybe, you know, you pick another company or whatever, but you kind of stick in the same path. So for me, I ended up basically running innovation and analytics at a bank selling credit cards. But but then I'm, I'm growing a credit card business bigger and I have a promotion. So now I'm going to stay in credit cards. Then I made the bank a billion dollars. Well, now I'm a credit card expert. It didn't have to be that I made them that much. It could have been a much smaller win. But the point is, now that's my expertise. And if I was to try to get any job at any other field at any other company, it's not going to do as well for me as sticking in credit cards. So now did I just become a lifelong marketer or a lifelong credit card strategist, even though that's not what I wanted and I just took the job and I just took the major and I just did the course? Wow. A couple few decisions create a lifelong uh, sort of chain of impact for us. This is something that you could change with optionality by finding ways to create more options. If I wanted out of credit cards, I could go back to school. I could work more with our different brands that are our clients or vendors. I could go to conferences. And that would be an individual's way to create optionality. But for your company as well, the key takeaway is you want to think not about the most profitable short-term decision, but about how to create more options for the future. When I read this, I thought about your own story about creating Trend Hunter. You didn't do that, the surety of success. You did it because you were interested, you tried it out. And I think that's one of the things I take from all this work is that you need to build capability before you actually need that capability. And the time to do it is when the sun is shining, not in times of crisis, because your mindset is going to be totally different. There's definitely a value to always looking at, at, at sort of how to build those future options. The only note I would say is that in time periods of, of crisis or chaos, uh, there's also still opportunity because now consumer needs have entirely evolved or changed, and yet other people get really, really conservative. So suddenly there's this new opportunity because the ball is moved to a different part of the court, uh, and, and you know you could be the one that gets there first. But, but yes, yeah, certainly the idea, the general takeaway is investing in your future options and self, even when times are sunny or gloomy. You mentioned earlier on Kodak and these companies like Nokia and Motorola, for example, when they were at their peak, that they become complacent. And there's a great quote by Brad Pitt, believe it or not, who says, success is a beast and it actually puts the emphasis on the wrong thing. You get away with more instead of looking within. And the reason I share that quote is that trap five is exactly that, the traps of success. And here you tell us success leads us to farm, but we really must always hunt. Yeah, your Brad Pitt quote reminds me of a Bill Gates quote, which says success is a lousy teacher. It ends in a similar way. The idea of uh, success 
and how it becomes a trap is something that I describe and actually research and study at Trend Hunter using the metaphor of a hunter versus a farmer. And we have a free assessment part of our research, if you like where I'm going with this, that, that you can take by going to Trend Hunter. But here's the, the, general, the general thought. A million years ago, we were hunters, and hunters are nomadic, eat or be eaten, always capable of finding a new meal. And you and I are capable of adapting. Great, we have hunter instincts. The problem is that 10,000 years ago, people became farmers. That's when we planted the first seed. And when we did, we could plan for winter. We started gathering in larger groups and forming our towns and cities and putting in rules, policies, procedures, and structures to protect whatever led to last year's harvest. And after 10,000 years of evolution as farmers, we have many distinct traps that block us from trying new things once we get good at something. And the way our framework works is that there's three key hunter instincts and three key hunter or farmer instincts that are generally good, but then there's traps involved with each one. The simplest way though to say it would be that farming makes us uh, repetitive, complacent, and protective, whereas our hunter instincts make us insatiable, curious, and willing to destroy. And you can take our assessment to see which of these, uh, like how exactly these impact you and find out your innovation archetype and get a little bit more specific answer to this question than what I can do justice to now. And I'm not selling you on something that's free, trendhunter.com slash assessment. But what I do think is interesting as a general takeaway is just the simple notion that all of us start to become more protective, complacent, and repetitive at whatever we're good at. And we don't use those words. We'll say marketing best practices and our, you know, our standards, but, but the simplicity is that we try to preserve whatever led to last year's harvest instead of looking for new pastures of opportunity. And then trap six in these times of exponential speed is linear thinking, which is a huge challenge for us. We live in a non-linear world. In almost every category, the world is accelerating. And I mean the word accelerating versus increasing in its pace. It's not that the world is moving faster than before. It's that it's accelerating faster and faster and faster through advances like artificial intelligence, through literacy, internet, connecting people around the world, leveling the playing field, you know, and, and all these things start adding up to um, a, a real complication because we know that humans are better at extrapolating the status quo than we are at thinking about what happens in an exponential pace. We slowly watch the evolution of COVID-19 in China, and then we see it spread to Italy, but we don't get how it's just going to keep on going. We don't see that. And when you, uh, when you put that into a business example, in the 1950s, you used to have a slower moving world and you could predict where your company was going. And so the average lifespan of a company that was a Fortune 500 was 75 years. We called them blue chip companies back then. People don't even use that word. You wanted to get it a good job at a blue chip company because it meant you could work at the same company for life. Wow, how different is that world? Now the average lifespan a couple of years ago of a Fortune 500 had fallen to 15 years. And with COVID-19, it's probably fallen in half already. A different stat would be that if you looked at the Fortune 500 list from the year 2000 and compared to now, more than half of the companies are already displaced and gone. Humans at those companies were the most equipped to have the resources and money and foresight to be able to see where the changes were headed. But unfortunately, we're just really bad at understanding exponential change. So there's a lot of tools and tricks you can do. To get better at it, but part of it is taking your forecast of what you think is going to happen in the industry 10 years from now and just cutting that in half and imagining, well, what if all that actually happened much sooner? What would you do? How would you prepare? Yeah, and the book is full of those workshops and ideas and how we can push ourselves and escape those mental shortcuts that we all develop over time. This brings us to trap seven and the final one, and this is discomfort versus breakthrough. And here you share four levels of breakthrough that we can all embrace. What I like to try and do is break down all of the different types of breakthrough that there could be to illustrate that some things 
are the little ideas you dismiss because they're just too close to what we're doing now and so it seems kind of uncomfortable, where others are your hidden gems and a lot more complicated. And so maybe I'll leave part of that last framework for, for the book, but I'll give you one thought on it of the dis idea of discomfort when you try something new. And it's, it's the idea of your keyboard on your phone or your computer. It's a QWERTY keyboard. You can stare at the layout and Q-W-E-R-T-Y, QWERTY, um, is what it spells in the top left there. But that that's kind of an interesting thing because you stare at that keyboard every day. And that design actually comes from more than 100 years ago and the you know early days of the typewriter. The layout was made so that the keys wouldn't mash together if you hit them all at once. And, you know, over time, there's been better attempts at making a better keyboard layout. There's one that's called a Dvorak keyboard, which is the second most popular keyboard layout. And if you look up a Dvorak keyboard, you'll see that the keys are all in a completely different position than what you're used to. It's a completely different layout. And if you open up your phone, you can change your keyboard and you can change to the Dvorak keyboard today. You can switch it over. But when you do, you won't recognize where the keystrokes are for a bit and it will take you about six months to get used to the other keyboard. Now, the upside is that at the end of the six months, you will be 20 to 30% faster at your typing by making fewer errors. So it's a good idea, you should do it, right? So get your phone, unlock it, and let's all yeah. switch right now to a Dwarf keyboard. Are you ready? No, I don't wanna do it. You probably don't wanna do it. And yet, <laughs> I just gave you a way to get 20 or 30% faster at how you communicate, which is something that you do every day. Um, and it would only take you a few months to do, but you don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And we all exhibit discomfort to things that are new at different levels. The question is to figure out what are the extent of those impacts on you so that you can better evaluate new ideas and know when there's something you should try. And I'm not suggesting you have to try a new keyboard, but that same set of traps could be blocking you from seeing ideas that are so close within your grasp. The better you understand the traps, the better you think disruptively, and the better you could then create the future. Jeremy, if you had a parting message, your mission is clear. You, you started on this at a very young age. You were fortunate to have a father like you did who encouraged this kind of lateral thinking and different thinking within you. And you seem to want to bring that to the world. So what would be your parting message for our audience and for other people who you want to change the way they think? At the risk of sounding a bit repetitive, it's the reality that everyone has another path they could be on. And maybe your path is a new product, a new service, or just a different way of doing things. But the simplicity is there's another level you can be playing on. And getting there might be easier than you think. But in order to get to that path, you need to better understand all of the little traps that are holding you back and blinding you from these new ideas that are right within your grasp. And you can get there, uh, push harder, act sooner, never give up, and you can find those new paths of opportunity and you will create the future. Beautiful way to finish. And as you mentioned there, I took the assessment on trendhunter.com forward slash assessment. But for anyone who wants to find out more about your work, your books, and your keynotes, where can they find you? The easiest place is to go to trendhunter.com versus trying to spell out my last name. Uh, but once you get there, you can find my info, my contact info, our different videos, and just navigating on the top. If you click into keynotes, you can get to my site, jeremyguche.com, and all my social media contacts and connections are there. CEO of Trendhunter and author of Create the Future, the Innovation Handbook, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking, Jeremy Guche, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much.